Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Lock the gate! All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuckeristas? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. I'm just trying to make a lot of uh, extra mic noise. How's that? Is that good? Is this enough? How about some, yeah, a little cre- creaking? How's that? Is that good? Brendan, you getting this? I just want to make sure there's a plenty of extra mic noise for my producer and for you people to know that I'm active. I'm an active adult. Look at me. I'm moving the, yeah, it's going all over the place, up and down. Active. Is this the wrong time to be doing exercise? Hey, take it easy. Fucking relax. We're going to get through this. A a few of us are. Most of us are. Maybe. Some of us aren't. Maybe most of us aren't. I don't know anymore. Yo-Yo Ma is on the show today. Yeah, Yo-Yo Ma. The cellist. Yo-Yo Ma. The world's preeminent cellist. He's also a United Nations messenger of peace. Talk a little bit about what that means. And he has a kind of memoir out right now. He's calling it a musical narrative that combines a narrative about his life along with musical compositions. It's titled Yo-Yo Ma, Beginner's Mind, and it's on Audible. Okay? Yo-Yo Ma, prodigy, genius, preeminent cellist. It was weird, you know, what I get in my head about people. I think I've talked about this before, approaching an interview. I get an idea in my head about somebody. I put them in a place in my mind, a pedestal, off a pedestal. I think about their work and and I think about what they do. I make assumptions about who they are. But it's sort of an interesting thing happened to me when I was talking to Yo-Yo Ma. And there's some sort of evolving understanding I'm getting about the magic of performers. I don't know if it's a respect it's developing. It's interesting. I can't quite put my finger on it. But, you know, I've been talking to musicians lately, you know, people that perform for thousands and thousands of people. And like, I don't, you know, comedy, whatever. You, you know what I mean? Something bad is happening in comedy. Comedy seems to be slowly becoming some sort of weird team sport with different camps of people. And, you know, it, it's just, I, I never got into comedy to uh, be on a team, to be compared or, uh, you know, to win You know, it was always about like, I can do this myself and speak my mind and do what I do over here in this corner. 
I just want to be left in this corner on this stage doing what I want to do, speaking my truth to the people that give a shit and then alienating them. But I'm a touring guy a lot of times. You know, for a good part of my life, you got to get out on the road to make the shekels, to do the, do the thing. It's how you get by. It's not glamorous. When I was starting out, you ain't going out and doing gigs for $800 Wednesday through Sunday. And that was a lot of money. That was a big deal. That was how we did it. Wednesday, Thursday, one show, two, three shows Friday, two, three shows Saturday, maybe a show on Sunday featuring 800 bucks. Sometimes you can eat at the hotel for free, eat at the club for free. They put you up sometimes in a condo that's gross, sometimes in a hotel that's okay. That's road life. Road life changes, you know, as some people get into the bus thing. I find that as time goes on, I don't like having a lot of people around. I don't like touring with a ton, ton of people. I don't, I don't really want power or, or uh, you know, want to be looked to as some sort of guide of any kind. I don't know what to do with that. I'm getting off my point. My point is the work of people who do the magic of being on stage is something odd and something, it's a gift. It's a weird skill because I talk to them here and they're just people. I've talked to some huge performers here and they're just people, but they get up there and they do the magic and they make thousands of people feel great. They, they, they transcend. They take people on journeys. They make people forget themselves for a while. But when I was about to talk to Yo-Yo Ma, my brain just put him, even though he does so many contemporary things, does, you know, all kinds of different uh, musical styles, traditional Japanese, classical, country, rock. Like, you know, he definitely takes chances. He definitely moves that sound that he makes through all different types of uh, audio landscapes. The cello is kind of a magical instrument. Out of all the instruments, it really is transportive. But there was always in my brain, you know, thinking about Yo-Yo Ma, the Yo-Yo Ma. I mean, he's a guy that, you know, like, he's up there in the rare air. He's a genius of the cello. He's, he's respected historically. He plays an instrument that's made hundreds of years ago. And there was just something about the idea that, like, when that guy performs, generally he's wearing a bow tie. So how can he not be doing okay? And I'm not saying he isn't doing okay, but there's a moment during this conversation where he basically says, you know, I got to go out there. I'm on the road all the time. And for some reason, I didn't put him in that world. I didn't think of Yo-Yo Ma being a guy who's got to, you know, load up the suitcase, load up the cello and hit the fucking road and hope that they have like, you know, you can eat for free at the hotel or, <laughs> you know, or at the club. Obviously, he gets treated well. But when you do a gig and you're a cellist, you, the, on, you, when you get there, you got to have the guys, there's got to be an orchestra, got to be a, 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 the, the chamber group or whatever. You got to have that set up. You got to have a conductor who wants you to come play. You know, you got you to get your tux cleaned. Got to have your bow tie straight. But I just thought that meant that, was, uh, that he would always be taken care of. And he probably will be. But it doesn't mean he doesn't have to go out and hit the road. And then I started to think, like, who goes to see classical music? Can you tank? Is it uh, how many people go to see it? Who's going to see it? Is there a half a house? Of course, sometimes there's a half a house. 
Is Carnegie Hall always filled for the chamber music stuff, for the classical pieces, for the orchestral stuff? No. On some level, Yo-Yo Ma is a touring musician. And in my head, I'm just sort of like, the bow tie must mean that he never has to worry about anything. That there's this whole angelic realm of people that honor this these historical pieces of music that bring to life these symphonies that that only a few people understand. That it's just it's just that is the world of of the aristocracy of of art is the world of classical music. But no, this guy's got to pack his fucking suitcase and hope the shit is there at the other end and hope the guys can you know are up to snuff that he's got to jam with. The bow tie had me all fucked up in the head. And this is a decent guy. Good guy. Virtuous guy. Guy who does good shit for people. You know, it's weird because, you know, I thought, I don't know. You, you know, this guy's been playing since he was four. I watched a TV appearance, or not a TV appearance, of him performing at uh, for the president. And the president was uh, Eisenhower, I believe. Uh, or maybe Kennedy. But he was seven. And you always think like those guys are, might be freaks, but some of them turn out okay. And he certainly did. Very nice guy, well-rounded guy, funny guy, decent person. His, his newest project, Yo-Yo Ma, Beginner's Mind, is available for free to all U.S. listeners on Audible right now. And this is me talking to Yo-Yo. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. You're in your garage and I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh, you're in Cambridge. You're not in out west. Yeah, People's Republic of Cambridge. I spent time in Cambridge. Uh, I used to uh, live in Somerville. I, I lived in right, that you area. Be you. I did go to BU. Did you have a car? I did have a car, yes. I okay. had a, uh, at that time, I think it was a Volkswagen Golf. Oh, I love uh, that. I love those. <laughs> Do you? Yeah. They're great. They're zippy. They are zippy. I, that was one of my favorite cars. It was an 89 Golf. Yeah. I remember being told that it was made at the Porsche factory, and I was like, that's why it's so great. That's right. That's right. It's got that extra zip that they put in there. Why Cambridge? Are you do you uh, teach at Harvard or something, or are you just there? I don't know. In? We're just like, you know, we just. I, I I think I think we thought this is a good place to live, bringing up kids because yeah. uh, you have a transient young population. Yeah. So it's close to the airport, 
And, Is it? Well, you know, it's unlike LaGuardia or Newark or, or right. JFK. Oh, okay, for you in traveling. Yeah, and you can, you know, so you have an airport that can get you to lots of different places, and you're close to the ocean, you're close to the mountains, and... and, and Are we talking about Cambridge? What mountains? Well... Uh, <laughs> The White Mountains. <laughs> That's that, you know. You're living in a different Cambridge I lived in. You're making it sound like it's the perfect place. Well, you know, I'm I'm trying to sell you the, my house. <laughs> I thought it's time you should, you know, like move out of your garage. And you need a house I, in Cambridge. Yeah. I want to move to your garage because I would love to have a garage. You don't have a garage? Not really. I mean, I'd love to have a garage that's kind of like a studio, you know? Like the really yeah. nice um it's it's that's a cool thing. This is like a house. I had to make it into a house, like this garage. It was a uh, it was a sort kitchen? of a studio. Yeah, a there's kitchen a kitchen in, in there. See? It's like, you know, you could live in there. You could be you could be yeah. on in a wheelchair and go <laughs> right in there. Right in. Sure. Yeah, no, it's great. And I got all these sound panels all over the place and I play guitar out here and I record this. I like a very dead space. You know how that is, right? Yeah. I imagine playing cello that you right when you walk into a, a space, you know exactly the acoustics of it. No, you know what's great about dead space? It keeps you honest. Because mm. when you when you're in a really beautiful space that has lots of warmth and reverb, you can sound like a, you know, horrible and you say <laughs> God, I mean, yeah. this is just like me in the shower in the morning. <laughs> I yeah. sound great. Who needs to practice? You know, where he's yeah. in a dead space. <laughs> you hear you everything. Know, pretty quickly says, oh, boy, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. am not as good as I thought I was. Yeah, this is. <laughs> yeah, good. do some woodshedding. Well, I mean, but when that happens for you, when you have a moment where you're like, I'm a, I'm a little rusty, I mean, what does that mean? Like, how do you know when you're rusty? Well, do you usually it comes from a, a wounded ego when my wife comes in and says, uh -huh. "says Are you, uh, you, are you all right?" <laughs> so, yeah, 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 I'm fine. Says because are you sure that was like in tune? I said, <laughs> I said of course it is. You know, immediately. Of course. My, yeah. My ego starts, you know, yeah, says, yeah. are you sure? You know, it says, yeah. And then I play and says, wait, are you sure? <laughs> and then I start, and, you know, steam and, starts to come out of my ears. Yeah. And you say, I am Yo-Yo Ma. <laughs> Don't you realize that's why I practice? <laughs> and then she I, walks away and then, you know, I calm down and I say, okay, yeah. I think I'm, I'm probably really, really in because- you your ear forgives a lot and if you are not looking for something mm. you won't find it it's oh. it's sort of like it's sort of like after you're 50 you're you're over 50 right 57 yeah yeah so you've had you've had your first colonoscopy yes couple i've had well i, well, I, I enjoy them so i go every few months yeah exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, Each to their they own. love you because you're a repeat customer. <laughs> yeah, I'm clean. I'm clean. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's that's. Yeah. Look to each his own. That's all yes. I can say. Thank you very much. So, so you're saying, but what happens to your ears? I know what happens to my ass. Well, yeah. so what happens to your ears is that that you you forgive yourself and like a colonoscopy, you know, you say, if you have it, they discover something, they need to do something about it. Mm, if, right, if, right, you know, right. And it's like, 
you know, if you don't really check for intonation or something, you just kind of oh really, uh, you just you, you kind of say, oh, I it feels good, you know, I, everything's good. But then you start to look under the microscope, everything is is awful, is out of so, tune. So it's like you have a, almost like an auto tuner in your ears after a certain point. Yeah, you have to check and recheck. You have to kind. Of, it's sort of like taking your music to peer review group. <laughs> they look at, you know, right. someone says, well, you know, I think you haven't thought about this and that. And another guy says, ah, well, you know, you should think about this. And then, and then you realize, okay, well, I better, I better go right back to the drawing board and see, see how it goes. And I think that's actually not a bad thing as long as you can still forgive yourself. Because yeah. they're those perfectionists that are always unhappy and they walk around with a scowl on their face and, and they just kind of realize, well, you know, it's horrible. I started out that way. I started out with higher standards and, and I used to go play a concert, you know, I was 15, 16 years old. Someone would say, yo, yo, that was really good. I said, no, that was awful. And, and, you know, what's the other person to think if someone yeah, else, yeah. someone thinks it's okay. You're taking you're away their experience. Exactly. Do you do that? I mean, I mean, you do these podcasts. Comedy. You have standards. I do comedy. I, I it's, it's just sort of like, well, I mean, the podcast is not the same, but like when I perform for an audience and I, you can tell, you know, your engagement with the audience, what you're getting back as a performer, what you're relative to what you're putting out as a performer, that that again, no matter what age you are, is easy to misjudge and you can read into it. So so, you know, if you're insecure enough or you're hard on yourself and someone comes up and says, That was great, and you're like, nah, I don't know what show you were at, but <laughs> exactly. nah, <yeah>. that <laughs> second that, that <laughs> second movement was terrible. I botched the whole thing. They're like, What are you talking about? Like, never mind. Thank you. See you later. And you ruined their night. You know, <laughs> So when so did you ever stop doing that or did you yes when and and why because i realized it was unfair yeah and that uh and that like it, it, you know a lot of times what you're put the pressure you put on yourself is not relative or or does not read to what uh someone else experiences so it was really just about like, you know, you have to let people have their experience. That's right. And even if they're just being polite, you have to let them have their experience. I mean, they, they could say that to you and walk out and go like, he was really off tonight. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, well, that's the worst thing because if you feel you had a good experience and someone oh, else yeah. had a terrible yeah. experience, uh, then your whole calibration is completely askew. Right. Oh, then you just yeah. Then you're just mad at them. Like if you have the best night of your life, and someone walks up to you and goes like, "Not your night, huh?" You're like, "What the? What are you talking about?" <laughs> Wait, that's my podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so, but, but the thing is, you then start to question everything because you know every every critic has some reason to not let's say like something there's a legitimate yeah, they, reason yeah, they have, there they have, they have personal problems that they're well, projecting yeah, onto yeah, you no, yeah it's really it's very easy to blame <laughs> someone else's problems but assuming that someone is you know well-intentioned and they are yeah. critical and yeah. you feel everything went well yeah that's a very deep uh existential problem because then it's like saying okay 
your radar wasn't tuned in. Well, yeah. I mean, if you trust the critic, and I, I think that good criticism, when it is directed at you, if that person has you know a, a well of wisdom and experience and you trust their judgment, I think that you can learn a lot from criticism. Yeah. And I think that especially if they if they do recognize something that you might have recognized but didn't really want to think about, or they put it into a different frame than you would see it. And I, I think that's sort of interesting about like, you know, your evolution as, as an artist is that, I mean, I watched you on, on, uh, I watched you perform for, for Ike and Kennedy on, uh, on YouTube when you were seven. First name basis with Eisenhower, but not, you know, but yeah, not, would not no. <laughs> yeah, JFK. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Just, both, just, just both before my time, yeah, uh, uh, you know, they were both gone by the time I was born, but, but to see you go out there at, uh, after being introduced by Leonard Bernstein to this incredibly white, ple- a proper audience uh, to perform for the president. But like from that moment, like you seem very well adjusted for a, a child prodigy, right? I mean, the, the, I, I can't imagine the pressure that you, you must've gone through for, I don't even know how long in your life. Uh, to, 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 it it seems to me that a lot of prodigies become kind of compressed freakish, uh, people, but you seem to be very, you know, open and continually growing and evolving musically. I mean, why are you looking at me this way? (laughs) How How did this, how did it, what I want to know is how did it start? Like, when did you know that you had this gift and did you feel at the time that you had the gift that you were, that you were a vessel for something bigger than you were, you were just in it? Do you know what I mean? What you're talking about is that you were looking at a seven-year-old child who just recently emigrated to the United States and uh, had no idea who Kennedy or Eisenhower were. They were important people and, Mm. and who loved the other performer that was on stage, who was Danny Kaye, conducting the National Symphony Orchestra. And I... So at the end of the evening, I remember thinking to myself, I want to be like him. I want to be like Danny Kaye because he was funny. Yes. And he made the orchestra stand up and sit down yeah. and, you know, and shout and <laughs> laugh and the audience. I mean, the guy was like all powerful. I mean, it's like, forget the political leaders. Here was sure. a guy who made things, with, but he did something else that was incredible. I, I have a photo of me as a seven-year-old with my sister, and there was Danny Kay crouched, looking at me, talking to me at eye level. Now, that is amazing. Now, I don't know if you remember yourself as a seven-year-old and being around very tall people. Yeah. They're giants, you know, and you have to crane your neck to look at them, and, and they look down at you, booming voice. And it's like, the world is a scary place. And here's this guy that I just admired so much. And, you know, talking to me at eye level, that was amazing. It's yeah. a it's a lesson, you know, in, in retrospect, that I think really, really impressed me. There was this hero, you know? Yes, that he's the willing that to I meet wanted you. To be, and he was actually my size. He, he shrank himself to my size. And that was to amazing. connect with you. Yeah. yeah. And and I think, and to this day, if I see a child, you know, and if my knees hold out, I, <laughs> I'll, I'll do the same thing because, because it's, it's, 
it actually makes everybody comfortable. Well, where did you immigrate from? Did Paris. You... Don't I look French? Yeah, of course you look French. Yeah. But your folks, your folks are from China. Yeah, they're from China. They went to France to study music. My father left in 1936. Yeah. So my father had gone through, uh, I think, parts of the Japanese invasion, the beginnings of the Chinese Civil War. And so he went through parts of World War II there, mm. and then he was in Paris during the Nazi invasion. So he, he had World War II from, you know, two different oh, parts angles. of the globe. Yeah. yeah. And my mother left in 1949, which was sort of right at the time that I think the, the Mao took over all of China. And so she went to study voice in, in France, in Paris. So she was a, a, a vocalist and your father was a... a... Uh, music student in terms of violin, composition, musicology. And so, so you got you you grew up. It was all all over. It was the place. It was tattooed on both my arms, my forehead. No, I'm kidding. I mean, I had yeah. musical parents and and a musical sister, a very musical sister. So my existential problem was that, well, I have many problems. The first problem was I started on the violin which I yeah. was not good at. And I was two and a half and I gave it up because I, I just sounded awful. Uh, it could be because my sister played violin too and she was four years older and, and she sounded great. And I just thought, you know, I can't, I can't do it. So you were two and a half when you quit the violin. Yeah. I was, you know, I, I was like, I was embarked on many different <laughs> careers, you know? Yeah. And so my parents yeah. thought the boy's not talented. Uh -huh. And then I think I saw a double bass when I was four and as a four-year-old and as a second child, I thought I want to play the biggest instrument there is. And that was the double bass. And I couldn't because it was... At, at two and a half? Well, at yeah. four. At four. At four. At, yeah. At four, yeah. So, so, you know... You would have had to climb up on it. There was a, there was a scalar <laughs> problem, right? Yeah. And so yeah. we compromised on the cello. And so I, prom I had to promise that I wasn't going to switch again. And, um, and, and then I... So I stuck with it. But my existential problem was mm. that I never made a decision that that this is what I really wanted to do. It just was there. I, I did it. I think I was okay at it. And are you telling me right now you're going to change? You're not, you're going to quit? Well, try something else. Maybe I'll, I'll have you know that. I, <laughs> so one April 1st, uh -huh. uh, NPR did an interview with me yeah. um, where I was supposed to say that I was switching and retiring from the cello to take up the Argentinian bandonian. Oh. The art the uh, the the accordion, the Argentinian yeah, sure. accordion. So they asked all kinds of questions, you know, and what is Emmanuel X is gonna say? Doesn't he think that, you know, that's kind of a silly thing to do? I said, No, no, not really, because you know, he always said the piano repertoire was much better than the cello repertoire. And the bandonian, you can play it like a keyboard, you know, so it's like you sure. know, I'm getting closer to more important repertoire. And so this was I I, I I realized afterwards how much fun it was to lie 
and just lie through your teeth and just make things up. And and yeah. then my manager got a uh, got a phone call to say uh-huh. someone wanted to hire me to do my first concert on the Bandonian. And of course, it was an April Fool's joke. <laughs> Volkswagen, Volkswagen. But like you know, when I listen to because like my music, like I I can't, I'm not gonna I can't pretend to know anything about classical music really and i i don't it's not even that i don't appreciate it it's just after a certain age it seems like too deep a rabbit hole for me to even begin with like i i kind of started uh doing jazz you know as a grown-up and even that is hard for me to it's a hard mountain to climb in terms of artists and who does what and who's great at what but i when i do listen to you no matter what kind of music you're playing i am transported in a way and i and i feel that you are sort of a a conduit a vessel of something uh, amazing i know that it's virtuosity but i it, when you were younger were you pressured or did you pressure yourself did your parents you know hound you or did you did you just were you able to absorb bach at 7 just magically okay so um there probably three layers of answers to that. The first one is, I think my parents really wanted me to be a musician. And so, and I had, you know, I have Asian parents. I had tiger yeah. parents, right. not one, but two tiger parents. And, uh-huh. and so there was, the, there was also the immigrant pressure. You know, you gotta, you gotta make something. Kid, yeah. you gotta do something with your life. And, uh, and so, I think I remember at when I was seven, I was on the bus, you know, in New York City. You know, I had to take two different buses. You, do you ever have, a, uh, you know, a bus pass, right? Sure, transfer. A transfer. I was holding on to the post or whatever you call it. And, and I figured out mentally how to solve a technical problem uh, on the bus without the instrument. So uh-huh. that makes me think, I must have been good enough at that level to kind of, you know, to be able to kind of extrapolate from away from the instrument to figure out something visually that I can solve a problem. There was pressure to do music. I think I liked, I loved music. And I played Bach, uh, you know, when you're a kid, you're like a sponge. Yeah. You just, you don't analyze things. You just, you know, if... uh, you could hear a song at nine years old and you know my kids when they were little they'd know the tune they'd know the lyrics and they they're not even trying right yeah okay okay i mean but there there are different size sponges you know right but 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 true okay but as a as a child you know i'm like other kids and this is what this is what i think I went through many stages where, like, you know, I was in college and I had a teacher who said to me, you know, you think you're good, but, you know, you know nothing. <laughs> yeah. You know nothing because you don't know why you're doing it. Interesting. So that was in college that happened? How old were you? I was 19 or something something like that. And, and this is a music teacher? Yeah. Yeah. I had huh. a music teacher. Uh, but you know what impressed me was that when I was nine years old, I read in a book that one of my heroes, Pablo Casals, said, I am a human being first, a musician second, and a cellist third. And I thought to myself, this is great, because my parents want me to be, you know, 
a cellist. And they don't understand. I'm a human being first. They don't get it. And, <laughs> and guess what? I've So Casal said it in the right order. I wanted it to be in the right order, but it took me decades to get to the right order where <laughs> I had to be a cellist. You know, uh-huh. I tried to learn how to be a musician, how to advocate for people's voices who are no longer with us, whether they're, you know, uh, dead or it was too long ago or or people who are alive who represent certain voices that I have to kind of understand and advocate for. Uh-huh. And, and after decades of doing that, I realized that, you know, ultimately what I do, and this is my long-winded way of answering your question, uh, is that the reason we have technique is so we can transcend it and get to the most basic reason why we do music is because we do it for one another and we're human. Mm. That's it. That's it. And every time that I play, it's for somebody who is, you know, that I'm actually trying to communicate with. And I say to myself in a live situation, the most important person is not me, is not even the composer, it's the audience member. Because the music, until it reaches someone else and lives in that person, um, I'm not doing my job. My job, well, so you're, what you're saying about the vessel is absolutely right. You, you know, My job is to transfer this stuff so that someone, it gets inside someone's under someone's skin, you know, and lives there and, and they react to it. It's, and, and it's theirs. And it connects people. Yep. Absolutely. But I have to imagine that, you know, when you're younger, you, you know, your ego was invested in a different way. I'm totally, it, 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 and it was probably more hung up on your performance. Absolutely. That's what probably what my teacher was referring to saying that, you know, the music yeah, it's about you, but you know, really, not really. Were you competitive? Was I? I was competitive. No, I was too confused to be really competitive. I wanted to just figure things out. You when know? you were a kid, yeah. really, when you were in your teens, you didn't feel like you know. They, when there another young gun came along, you're like, no, nah, because because because. Uh, well, first of all, I was homeschooled until I was seven. Mm. Because uh, so when we were in France, we were homeschooled. And then I entered second grade in New York City. And the life at home was pretty regimented. So I didn't see a lot of friends my own age, didn't really have play dates. Because you were practicing? I was practicing. I was doing language theory and French and Chinese and piano and theory and all kinds of stuff. Oh, my God. When you're seven? seven until I was 15. Yeah. Uh, And then when I went to college, you know, I sort of had to learn how to have friends because I I was dying to have friends. I was dying to see people my own age, Mm. but I didn't go. So when I went away to college, eventually it was not a music college. It was, you know, a liberal arts college, which meant that there was, nobody to be competitive with because everybody else was doing something else. Well, let me ask you, like in, in retrospect, 
you know, in, in the way you sort of uh, explain or talk about, you know, coming from, you know, Asian parents with expectations and uh, immigrant parents with expectations, was there a point where you resented the 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 discipline and 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 your parents for putting you through it uh i don't think i knew better it wasn't like i had much to compare this to uh-huh. you know it was a unique situation that's why i view those years as my you're a conscious years well in a way yeah i mean you know i had very limited sort of space yeah. to operate it right but all this time, you, you know, what do you do when you're in space? Like, you kind of develop your imagination. You read books. You're by yourself. You think about things. You wonder what's what. And and I'm I was dying to interact with other people. And when you went to, what did you study in college? Well, I studied all kinds of different things. Well, liberal arts college, which meant you take courses in anything you're interested in. So, Which college? Uh, I, I went to Harvard. Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, outside of basic courses that you have to take. Uh, I took courses in literature and history and astronomy and in different literatures, Russian, German, French, Chinese. Uh, and and guess what? It was amazing because every subject was like a different world. And and it was all new to you. It, a lot of it was new to me. A lot of it started to answer questions that I always had. I loved like anthropology. Well, I loved anthropology because, mm. because it was one way to analyze, to think about the different cultures that I had come from or that I had met without prejudgment. I think one of the things that anthropology did for me was to actually look at what are the values that each culture places priorities on. Interesting. What What did you find the common thread was? Well, I think the common thread was that you're rotating similar values, but just it's just that some culture might have a slight priority of one thing over another. And as a result, a whole system of habits and beliefs became that way, right? And so, so uh, whether you see Anglo-Saxon culture or Latin cultures or Germanic cultures or Russian cultures, or, you know, it's... it. There's just slight changes, like between North and South in in the States. You have slight differences that then people turn into larger, you know, uh, societal differences. Defining characteristics. Exactly. And so if you approach uh, each one of those cultures without a prejudgment or prejudice to say, well, this is bad or this is good or this is better... Uh, this became one way I could explore the world uh, with gusto, with great curiosity, and and meet people from where they are. 
And also what I noticed about you and, and how you present yourself and the nature of music is that there it is apolitical. It is apolitical. So, you know, you go into a, anywhere you go into as Yo-Yo Ma, the, the virtuoso, that, you know, that is your gift. You, you don't need to speak. You can make yourself open. You can be available to engage with people without, uh, you know, having an opinion, but with this tremendous craft that is elevating to anybody. It's a universal language. So in, in that way, you can probably absorb more than the, 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 the average person who goes in with an ego, with an opinion, with, with, uh, with a judgment that uh, you can sort of go anywhere in peace with music. Well, I think, well, that's a nice way of putting it. I mean, I think, I think certainly a lot of that holds absolutely true. I, I would like to think that music is apolitical until someone makes it political. I, I would like to think of it as apolitical. I, I do think that some of it is, um, you know, that kind of approach is for me is also uh, not not just a good thing to be, but it's almost a matter of survival. Because if you think about uh, the life of a touring musician, my norm for the last forty five years was to be gone eight months out of twelve months. From the age of of what fifteen? No, from the age of like early twenties. I've been married for forty two years. For 27 of those years, that was my life. So until the pandemic, uh, I've never been at home so relaxed and unstressed in all the 40 years that it's, I've it's, been married. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, well, it's ama- well, it's it's interesting to me that what I noticed immediately was that there is a... Sadly, it took a pandemic to realize it, but there's a relief in knowing that nobody's really doing anything. And, and and that you know that like yeah. if you, you you cannot work because no one's working yeah so you so that that part of you that puts that kind of pressure on yourself no longer needs to be active so there's a freedom in that absolutely the freedom to actually be in some ways your younger self but with more experience you know the younger self of life is wide open you, you don't have daily scheduled responsibilities. Well, uh, let me ask you, like, like you, you, you know, you may, you made choices over the last 45 years to, to tour as much as you do and record as much as you do. Right. I mean, it wasn't just a job. I mean, it was, it was the life that you chose and wanted to live. Right. Well, absolutely. But think of it this way. I am an independent contractor. There's no safety net. For no, I get it. I'm concert. in the same boat. You, you yeah. too. Yeah. So, yeah. so you know that, uh, you know that life, uh, which means that, you know, you're as good as your last gig in a certain way, and you're as good as how much someone is willing to trust you based on what you've done cumulatively. Right. But I mean, but you're the you're the best at what you do. I mean, you, you know what? So, so let me give you an example. Uh, <laughs> you're you're going to tell me they're like, hold on, let me see your resume, no, Yo Yo Ma. No, yeah, no, but but I'll I'll tell you because when I was growing up, uh, you know, I had a lot of heroes, hmm. and and you know, gradually your heroes die. Yes, ten years after they die, you talk to another generation, says, 
do you remember so and so? Who? Yeah, I, I I tell you, it's not uh, it. You know, and the fact that we live in a very busy and uh, competitive hierarchical world means that there's not a so much space for that many, let's say, cellists. But but you go, you're gone, and and I don't think you know. So so I don't think that uh, people maintain necessarily long memories about things. For me, not anymore. Yeah, right. And but for me, memory is incredibly important because yeah. I I think for, like if if I play a concert and you go to it, you've invested a certain number of hours of your time in a very busy life. And, and if, you know, and if you're commuting from your garage to an, to a, to a place of the hall mm. and there's traffic, there's parking, there's all of that stuff. And I've flown from, you know, I'm, this is part of the eight months I'm gone every year. So I want to make it worth your while. And we want to make it worth each other's while to actually try to remember tomorrow what we did today. Yeah. And if you don't, and if I don't, there actually is no reason why you should be there and I should be there. So I'm actually totally invested in creating memories that are unique for every place that you're in. And there's no shortcut to creating those memories uh, except for really caring about being there, about trying to find out as much as possible who you are and for us to know who we each individually are and what we care about. Because otherwise, why are we doing it? Right. And also I think that you do that in all these different forms too, that you know, that your 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 curiosity has enabled you to take your your skill and your talent into you know multiple different disciplines, uh musical disciplines and 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 genres. So like, you know, it's not just that, you know, this experience or this memory or this evening or 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 whatever, but you know, you are expanding your repertoire, you know, out of your own curiosity, which seems to what I, I guess with the anthropology element of uh, of your education, when did you start to realize that music and form kind of travels in and out of different forms? Like, you know, there's a, a moment I saw, I think you were on NPR or something talking about Bach and that, you know, within this classical uh, compositions, you have different bits and pieces from all around the world in music. And it seems that, you know, for me, I'm sort of a blues-based guy. Yeah. And, you know, when I had Taj Mahal sitting in here and he picked up this crappy guitar I have and he was able to play some something that almost seemed Senegalese that, that seemed to travel to the beginning of, of that type of music. I mean, it seems that part of your journey is, is evolving that understanding of the nature of music around the world. I, I You're absolutely right, and you're absolutely right about the blues. I mean, I think, you know, the blues in terms of, of uh, just the, the numbers of cultures it draws from, and, you know, you look at the instruments, you look at the banjo, yeah. uh, you look at, at the, the blues scale. It's all, I mean, it's, it's about human creation out of putting 
different roots together and then forming something new. And that's, but isn't that with everything music? Yeah, all music. It's, it's it's also with all of biology. You know, it's it's how these things combine and recombine uh, to create what is seemingly, you know, new, interesting forms that actually speak deeply to to people's experiences. What's what's the most ancient thing? Or, or or frequency or vibration that you've tapped into as as a cellist, like what what like which type of music? Because I listened to the Japanese music you did, and I mean you can do the Brahms and Beethoven and Bach and everything, but there's something that, that you have a, a sensibility, and I imagine it takes some practice to adapt to these different structures and melodies and scales. But what have you tapped into that felt the most primitive? Well, I can tell you that uh, when I was in college, I took. And an anthropology course, and one of the the peoples that we studied and through films that were taken in the 1950s were the Bushmen of the Kalahari Desert in uh-huh. Namibia and Botswana. And so I was, there was one film of a blind musician who played on a gourd-like instrument and sang, uh, and and so it's like with the tapping of a stick and and on these strings, yeah. The most haunting music, and the film was called Bitter Melons, and I, I actually have a roommate who recently told me that he remembered my coming back to the dorm, <laughs> so unbelievably excited, saying, "This is unbelievable! I got to find out more about this. This is just, you know, it opened up a whole world to me," huh. and I never gave up that thought. So that actually about 10, 15 years after graduation from college, I went with a film crew uh, to Namibia to do a film on the music of the Bushmen and their trance dance practices. And so, which actually, it was probably, speaking of the deepest or oldest, it that trip opened up for me after watching the trance dance practices where, you know, basically you offer to kill a cow, have a, you know, have, have a feast day. Uh They did the trance dance and we all participated in it. And, you know, the people sit in a circle, the women sit in a circle and the men who are talented go and, do this rhythmic motion around the fire for like eight, nine hours and until they get into a trance. And then there's a laying of hands and, you know, and people are invited from other villages to actually be cured. You know, this is like a shamanistic thing. Uh-huh. So it's, it's, so there's a generous impulse and the rhythmic clapping and the smoke and all of that gets everybody into this state. And, for me, this was their most complex cultural ritual. It served as their medicine, their form of, you know, medicine, mm. their form of religion, yeah. their form of uh, entertainment, and it of of spiritual communal sort of gathering. Yeah. Now, the next day, I interviewed two of the women, and who had, you know, clapped and sang all night. I said, you know, why do you do it? And they said, because it gives us meaning. Right. And that was 
and still is the meaning for me, for anything that we do that is culture. And the culture for me is not, you know, classical music or, you know, or Van Gogh or whatever. No, the culture is what we deem as important and meaningful in our lives. Whether it's thinking about, you know, your grandparents or thinking about, you know, holidays, important holidays, meaningful holidays, what we do, why we do it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so so I've been guided by that ever since. It gives us meaning because if it stops giving us meaning, it doesn't have any meaning. It's all gone. And that makes sense to me. And I think what I was saying to you about being apolitical was that obviously some music is written for political intent or, or for to motivate in either the good or bad or ways, necess- depending on the culture it comes from or, or what have you. But I just meant you as an emissary. So so you as a musician, as an emissary of this culture, of this passion that you have, of this meaning, you, you know, that that's sort of what I was talking about. And I think it sounds like this experience that you had that that changed your your entire perception of of what meaning means and it, and it did revolve around ritual and music i guess what's interesting to me in relation to that is you take that to whatever as as somebody who honors other people's compositions more so than create your own you take your meaning you take that impulse to any type of form that you do like you know, whether it's bluegrass or tango or or anything else that's right and and what you're sharing in in what I meant by apolitical is that you can travel anywhere and 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 be the, this respected you know vessel of this music and this meaning, yeah. Even like you could perform for people that maybe are are vile and awful people and and still be enjoyed. <laughs> well, the thing is, like, what <laughs> that's interesting that you say that because I think that um, the other thing that that I I believe deeply is that um we're all capable of both the most vile acts in the world as well as the most you know transcendental human uh achievements right right? yeah and it's it's not that they're good people and they're bad people no we are the people we contain that and depending on how we happen to be born or constructed or or nurtured uh these different aspects will come out and so if there's anything i can do uh in music it's not to say i'm playing for good people bad people or rich people or poor people mm-hmm. uh a green people or purple people but it's rather is to actually celebrate uh the deepest of what you know humans are it's our humanity you know it's like let's yeah. let's forget all the names and categories and whatever when we're sitting in a room together we are one and and with the vibrations in the air molecules that the sounds are making it's touching all of our skins and entering into us and it turns whatever is the other into we. And, and yes. that's for that, even for a moment, 
That's right. that's the reality of the moment, and and if if music from whether you define however you want to define music or genres of music, actually all of music takes us into specific states of mind. Yes, right. It beats chemically produced drugs because yes. it actually the state of mind is produced by human biochemicals that we manufacture ourselves. Yes, yes. Right? Yes, I mean, so that's yeah. that's our own substance that we are creating for ourselves. Do you feel like it, with different forms of music, you can feel different things totally, happening to you? Totally. And that's, <laughs> you know, and I only realized that when someone asked me um, at Tanglewood, I was doing like a Q&A and at one yeah. point someone said, you know, you've played the Dvorak so many times and and how does it feel to play it for the 984th time? And and I said, you know, I, I thought I had just played with uh, these wonderful uh, tango musicians who are backstage. They never stop playing a tune, you know? So uh -huh. it's like there's a moment of silence someone will pick up an instrument and start something and then inevitably everybody will join in, right? Yeah, right? And I'm thinking, okay, so the difference is if I'm playing a written piece of music, that happens less with musicians who are doing something that specific. And the difference is if you're doing someone else's music and it's not your own versus if you're part of a tradition, you say, this is us, this is, you know, if you own it, you don't get nervous and you can't go wrong. Right. But if you think it's somebody else's and you have to do it exactly this way or it's wrong, that's a terrible attitude to have. And you, <laughs> in fact, you want to have the attitude of saying, this is our stuff. No matter what you're playing. Exactly. And if yeah. it's yours, you own that thing. So, so every time you play that thing, no matter how many times you do it, it's yours. You can't, exactly. And it can't go wrong because you could make a mistake, but you you don't kick yourself for it. So it says, well, that's a, you know, that's a mistake or, you, you know, I didn't mean it that way. But actually there are no mistakes because everything, it's ours and we just, you know, we know it for what it is. And that leaves room for new things to happen, depending on who you're playing with and who you're being backed by and who the, you know, what they're bringing to their instruments. And so anything that could be hundreds of years old can, you know, come to life every time you play it in a different way. Absolutely. And when something goes wrong, so sometimes uh -huh. I carry, <laughs> yeah. I carry an extra set of strings uh, yeah. with me on stage because sometimes strings break. And if yeah. a string breaks at the beginning of a performance, I think I'm living the life of Riley. You know why? Because why? after you, the string breaks, everybody goes, <gasps> you know, big drama, right? You put on the string, you come back on stage, everybody's happy, applauding. They've just seen something unique. <laughs> and because something untoward has happened, yes. you're free for the rest of the evening. You can do no wrong. <laughs> and again, that's, you know, it's like, you, well, everybody's I'll know that. on your side. If I see you do the string breaking bit, you know, too many times, I'll know that it's a trick. Exactly. That's why I only do it every 17th concert. And if you're there, you know, you'll know. <laughs> this is that ago. thing. I heard about this. Yeah. Yeah.
He needs to freshen it up with the string break. Yeah, bit. exactly. Yeah, 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 that's right. So, how like when you're honored as a UN messenger of peace, you, you that's not something you that was that a surprise to you? Of course. I mean, yeah. don't, you don't apply for it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know the you guy, do with your life's work. Yeah, no, yeah, you know, you, the, you, you know the the guy who was who was campaigning for the Nobel Peace Prize and said, yeah. I'd kill for the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, well, first of all, it's an incredible honor. But, you know, when... So I think Kofi Annan was, was um, the Secretary General at that time. Mm. And I'm very privileged that I've been reappointed. And I've actually gone through many iterations of asking, what does one do? What do you mean you're a messenger of peace? You know, you go around the world and say peace, you know, what well, what does that mean? And yeah. it made me think about it. It made me yeah. think about, well, what 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 does that mean? And I was told at that time was that, you know, you continue to do what you do, which didn't help very much in terms of figuring out what that meant, but I think it helped me think much more about common humanity. I think one of the message, messages of the UN is uh, one of the words they use for everybody is dignity. Mm. And I've been saying this uh, in the last couple of years is that, uh, especially just around the pandemic, you know, for people who are, who are, lost people who have lost things. But I included in the dedication of some music to say, you know, to all the people who have lost someone, but also including those who have lost their dignity. Because I think if you take away someone's dignity, that's almost the worst thing you can do. Because you're taking yeah. away, you're you're crushing their soul, and when I say that in an audience, you actually kind of hear either a slight intake of breath or a sudden silence, deeper silence, because it's mm. like it's unexpected, and and I really mean that because there are enough times that I see. Right around, you know, whether it's people to people, you know, people take away each other's dignity yes. without reason. And and that and and sometimes not without even realizing it. And and I think part of being a messenger of peace could be just being more mindful of that. You know. Of other people's dignity. Uh, yeah. Of of just being mindful of what happens around you, you know. So often, like when Danny Kay was putting his, you know, eyeballs to eyeball to, to the kid, <laughs> yeah, right? Right. It's it's like, you know, eyeball to eyeball to someone who's bring you coffee, you know, as opposed, yeah. to, you know, and like looking at them and saying thank you, you know, that's give someone just 
the dignity of being a fellow human being, someone just the brought respect. you coffee. Right. Yes. As opposed to, well, you know, that's your job, you know, and I'll give you a tip and that's it. No, that's, it's, there's more, things are more than just transactions. And if we reduce everything to just a transaction, we are actually uh, diminishing our own humanity. Right. Transaction is fine. It's, it's great, but it's very it's very easy now with the way technology works, and you know it also relates to what you're talking about being remembered. Is that there? There's a short. People have become shallow uh, in terms of what it means to be a, a a righteous human being. Exactly. That's right. And and I think I think every one of us can do more to. Uh, to be, you know, just to be mindful, thanking a child for saying something, thanking, you know, just it's, and I find that actually one of the only ways I can, could cope with the pandemic is, is actually, uh, is to think more about just being grateful for what we do have. Was this project that you embarked on beginner's mind the memoir and the music uh was this all birthed during the pandemic was this how you utilized your downtime <laughs> when you had that when you had that moment where like wow i i'm not on the road i i could you know i am actually talking to my wife how many kids do you have kids yeah I have two kids and three grandchildren kids, yeah three grandchildren yeah. so so you're like i'm i i, I have all this time but i'm gonna do this work i'm gonna yeah. i've i've it's about choosing how you use your time. And I think, uh -huh. and, and I, I really, I'm grateful for that because it's, it's, it felt in some ways like an enforced sabbatical or early retirement, you know? So it was like, oh, so this is what retirement might feel like, you know, like you get up in the morning. Yeah, I felt that too. Really? I felt that too. Yeah. I, I, well, I, I, well, it's again that what we talked about before without the, with knowing that no one else is working. And that you can't really work that you, you know, you turn that part of your brain off and you're like, yeah, it's not kind of nice having time. What do I want to do with this time? Right. That's right. You know, and everything, it's like, you know, some people were complaining about how long the days were. I'm like, look, if you're retired, you want those days to be long. <laughs> you know, you don't want it to run out on you. Well, the, the funny thing is that what, again, when you're a child, time yeah. is infinitely slow. Yes. Right. Like you can't wait for summer to come. Well, and it's April and it's right. like, it That's feels right. like it's like yeah. 10 years from now, it's going to be summer. Yeah. And yeah. now two months <laughs> yeah. feels like nothing. But yeah. during a, during a pandemic right. uh, time, actually you can re-slow down time and, and, and enjoy and savor a longer yeah. day. What, now, structurally, the idea of beginner's mind do you have a practice? Do you have a spiritual practice? Uh, my spiritual practice actually comes from uh, during the years of having young children of playing music because the the music always, uh -huh. you're going for something bigger than yourself. And secondly, uh, the music also, uh, nobody can call you or interrupt you. And which means like you're in a zone you know, and and it's a zone meditative. that is absolutely meditative, and you are in a different state of mind. And sure. yeah, spiritually, yes, I think I I do have uh, my family were brought up, 
you know, Episcopalian, and my father was a Buddhist, my mother was Christian, and we have friends who are of all different faiths, and we try and um, actually be part of their celebrations, which is great. Sure. So, yeah. so, uh, and and I think that just the the comfort level of that allows me to feel connected to people's spiritual identities. And and when you structured this project uh, by calling it Beginner's Mind, what uh, you knew that it was going to be a, a memoir driven by the music that you layered into it? What was the concept? Uh, I think it... the music came after. Uh, so you wrote the memoir? Did you write it as a book or you wrote it? I wrote it in, in the sections. I think I there were sort of, uh, there were two people I wanted to really focus on sort of the development of like 40, 50 year friendships. Emmanuel Axe is a pianist and Catherine Stott, another pianist uh-huh. I met in, in, you know, when I was literally a teenager in early twenties. And, um, and, and I wanted to, uh, th- what we talked about earlier about sort of the non-judgmental approach of meeting some, someone or meeting uh, country or culture, I kind of think that that's beginner's mind. The beginner's mind is, you know, you're wide open. Mm. You have no preformed judgment on things. You just kind of tell me what mm. it is. Tell me what it's like. And and I think that to me is something that, especially when I get older, you have to actually be conscious of to be able to have that beginner's Makes- mind in order to really uh, come up with new, to accept new things. Continue to be curious and 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 wanting to learn. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, because you can be wide open in a sort of desperate, broken way, but to be wide open with joy and curiosity is uh, is is where it's at. I think so, and and if you're open to that. You're always learning and you're always teaching at the same time. And when, when did you, like, what is this? When did you and, you and Mr. Rogers become buddies? Uh, well, my, at, at that time, I think it was probably 1985. Uh-huh. My son was two years old. He loved Mr. Rogers. So every time Mr. Rogers came on, he would look at, um, he'd look at him. And, and then uh, I was asked to, you know, do you want it? do an episode of Mr. Rogers and do Sesame Street at the same time. I said, yes, absolutely. Are you kidding? Uh-huh. Which father would not want to kind of, you know, yeah. uh, do something that your son is really interested in. And, and so I met him and, and true to form, he was, uh, you know, when I first met him, he put his face within like, three inches of my face. Now, you know about social distancing these days, but you know about... This is another uh, Danny Kaye situation. Well, in a way, but even closer. And I uh-huh. felt so uncomfortable because, uh, yeah. you know, there's kind of <laughs> yeah. uh, acceptable social distancing, right? Sure, and sure, he sure. came so close and I you know, I started sweating. I thought, you know, what's going on? Why, why am I so uncomfortable? <laughs> Uh-huh. I, only to realize later on that what he was doing 
is exactly what a child does to an adult. You know, they uh-huh. grab onto your teeth, they pick your glasses, you know, yeah. they don't have social distancing. Right. And so he, in a way, when he talked to people, he stripped himself of all the social ah. uh, habits that we develop says, oh, we shake hands, you know? Yes, I right. pat you on the back and yeah. says, hello, how are you? And, but he's just says, hi. Yeah. You know, it's so nice <laughs> to yeah. see you. And I'm thinking, oh no. And, <laughs> but it's so disarming when you uh-huh. realize that that's the, the degree that he transformed himself to be the trusted person in the child's world. And mm. we developed a friendship because he was a brilliant pianist. His, he oh, composed yeah? all the music. He did all the singing, all the characters. Uh-huh. And, and there's something on YouTube where he's playing jazz piano. And it's like, and he and his, uh, 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 unfortunately, Joanne is also uh, passed away this year, his widow. Uh-huh. Uh, also a wonderful pianist. And so they, we just somehow developed a, a, a very, very lovely friendship for Well, it sounds decades. like, uh, it sounds like you learned things from him. I learned not only a lot of things from him, but my son who became a documentary filmmaker in the last, you know, seven, eight years. He was one of the producers for the Mr. Rogers film. Uh, that will oh. be my neighbor, and he was the one who told me so much more about Miss Rogers that I did not know. That made me actually come back to him and realize this was a he was a giant. I mean, in terms of what he, how much he dedicated his life to the life of children. So I guess, like, what I want you. To- to tell me now, and I'm trying to frame this question so it's not a question that I would be annoyed with uh, if I were asked a similar question okay. in terms of uh, uh, craft. But you, you know, as somebody who does not know a lot about classical music, what which piece of music, when you are going to play it, do you sort of like have to like get into shape for? Where you're like, I love this, but it's going to take everything I've got. So obviously, th- there's no one one piece of music, and and it that's, also yeah, changes. No, that's the issue. Yeah, yeah. and it also issue. changes from every part of your life depending on where you are. You know, like for example, okay, okay. So I haven't played a public concert in you know many many months. So um, I'm about to do something uh, that's sort of like a virtual uh, concert. Uh-huh. Uh, just shy of my 50 years playing uh, a debut recital in New York. So on, so on May 6, 1971, I yeah. found out that I gave a New York debut at Carnegie Recital Hall. And what I'm doing is trying to replicate some of the pieces that I played at that concert. Now, mm. when you're 15, or I, when I was 15, I knew nothing, but right. I could play the cello. And so obviously I wanted to show that I could play the cello. So the pieces 
that were chosen, a lot of them were very difficult. Virtuosic music, you know. Which so, ones? So, like, there's a piece by Paganini that he wrote for one string. Why? Uh -huh. Because he wanted to show off that you uh -huh. know, he actually deliberately, supposedly, cut off the strings, and so he remains what there's one string remaining, and he plays the whole piece on it. You know, uh -huh. pieces like that. There's a Locatelli yeah. sonata, which is an early Italian sonata, that that is filled with just very difficult stuff. Uh -huh. And I'm trying to think about the concert as beginnings, you know, the first piece of music I played as when I was five, I gave a, uh, a little recital and I played uh, a piece by Bach. Uh -huh. uh, my cello teacher, Leonard Rose, when I first started studying with him at age nine, one of the first pieces he taught me was this Francoeur sonata. And um, so, so it's like revisiting certain beginnings and for me to play this at age 55 65 is kind of a test right to say uh because you know the when you're young you feel you're immortal you could do everything you don't have much experience at my age i have a lot of experience athletically i'm slower or and so what gives can you? So I, I just wanted to kind of test myself and to show, uh, again, without prejudice, because I may make it, I may not make it, I may do well, I may not do well, but but it's it, it. I'm going to try and put myself through the hoops to see what's the best I can do. You know, maybe well, it's it, like it, a golfer, you know, trying to kind sure. of, yeah, you know, it's, it's, but, but, but also you, like you said earlier, but you know, now that the one thing you can do, no matter what happens is make it yours. Absolutely. Except that if you're trying to do something technical, Right, it's right. like I get it. playing I get at a certain it. Yeah, yeah. speed. Well, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to practice. I can make it mine and still miss the run, <laughs> and it's my yeah. miss. You know, but, so right, so. right, sure, sure. I, it's interesting though because like I, uh, you know, the Rolling Stones put out a blues record a couple years ago, like mm -hmm. straight up blues, and they really hadn't done that, and we've been waiting decades for it. You know, it could have been the it could have been a song list that they had done on their first record. So, and the thing about the blues, not unlike I think you know anything composed, uh, which is different, but you know, if you you can you can play it if you know how to play what you're playing, you can play the blues, and you can play what's written down on the paper. But the interesting thing about you know the blues, which you know, can be very tiring and very boring music because everybody can play it, is that the Rolling Stones, now 50 years in, they played this blues record and it was so essentially a Rolling Stones record, yet they were these old, you know, like, it's what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, you know, anybody can play the blues, but only the Rolling Stones can be the Rolling Stones. Not in the same way, in the same way that, you know, anyone who can play the cello can play the cello, but only Yo-Yo Ma can play the cello like you. So so it's going to be an exciting event, I think, no matter what. Well, I don't know, but I can I can tell you what I've figured out so far is that a lot of the difficult things yeah that were difficult then uh-huh i can uh, there are new ways of solving the old problems so uh -huh. there's some advantage for that yeah what i will not have as an advantage is you know i'm not practicing the same way i used to practice 
when I was 15. Well, you better start. Exactly. And and the thing that's, so you just don't know where where the breakdowns are going to be. Did you try a piece? Is this what you were playing at that vaccine site when you got vaccinated? No, no, I was just, no, no, I was just, you know, I, I, I had my cello with me because I couldn't keep it in the car. And, and, uh, and I said to my wife that, you know, if I take it in, people might, you know, say, well, you're going to play something. And, uh, (laughs) and I said, you know, I, I was not intending to, but Uh I was also slightly, thinking it might happen you know yeah and right it did happen and and of course you know i, I said sure if you want me to i'll i'll, I'll do it because i actually love doing stuff like this i love playing for people outside of the usual venues it just makes it so much more personal oh of course and so okay so back to the practice so what are you going to do well you're now reminding me that I need to practice slowly, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. because if you if you slow things down, you hear more accurately. You are more in tune with every tiny step of what you need to do on a neuromuscular mm. level. Oh, yeah, and and so again, it's about the control of time and space and your muscles that allow you to be free enough to be expressive at the moment. So oh, great. So you know, if I mess up, I'll blame you. I said, "Look, I told Mark I was going to do that, and That's I fine. did that, yeah. and it obviously didn't work." You know what, dude? I think this is, <laughs> I think this is one of those times where you got to break the string out of the gate. Yeah, you, know, you just think break, so, like, huh? Yeah, do break the string after the first few minutes, and then you know you've got you've got the sympathy. You've yeah, but Mark, the yeah, there's a one problem. There's not going to be a live audience, so I, I'm not going to hear the gasp. They're not going to be on my side. You can, but you can assume that it's going to happen. You it, think it, so? It, huh? it, yeah, yeah. Just do the string breaking thing. Uh, I think uh, you got it, mate. Okay, fine. I'll have I'll have two <laughs> options. One, I'll tell you what I'm going to do is practice slowly, and second, I'll break all my strings. And if that doesn't work, I'll still blame you. Okay, I'll take it. Is that I'll all right? take the hit. That's yep. fine with me. Okay. I'm sure it's going to be great. And it was certainly uh, lovely talking to you. I really appreciate the time. Well, it's, it's great to talk with you. And I just want to tell you that I've appreciated, so loved listening to you. I've, I've heard uh, a number of your, your podcasts. Obviously, I heard the one with, with Obama. I've heard uh-huh. the one with Ter- Terry Gross. And, and oh, also, if you're lost, and I'm sorry, you know, that's... Oh, um, yeah, yeah. And, and there's, that's, if anything brings out our common humanity is that we, we have to go through it, you know, and, and we have to get back up. So, yeah. And it's so interesting that what you said earlier about, you know, music and, and, you know, changing your, your brain chemicals is that, that Lynn, you know, Every morning she would take a bath and sing loudly, loudly in the bathtub because I think it really, she meditated and she sang loudly every day, like at the top of her lungs. And I think it was really to to get her brain in the right place for the day. Wow. Her way of greeting the day. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I I appreciate it. yeah, and uh, yeah, and, and one of the things that that comforted me through it was knowing that on some level, you know, obviously we, we it all happened to all of us, but also like losing people is is pretty 
human and pretty common and not unusual, you know, whether it's tragic or not. And, and I, and I did find comfort in the humanity of that really. Yeah. Yeah. But, but again, uh, really an honor and, you, you know, and I, and I, and, and someday I'm going to learn more about classical music. No, you don't need to listen. <laughs> this it's like sort of saying someday I'm going to learn more about life. You know, well, just like, I'll just listen to it. That's yeah. all. I don't need to learn. I'll just listen to it more. Yeah. Or listen, if I come uh, to your town, are you in L.A.? Yeah. Okay. If I come to your town and and you have a free night and you know we can go to a concert or you can come to a concert if okay. I'm playing and we can schmooze. We'll do it. I'd love that. You know? Yeah. Just I'd like love it. Free. Just you yeah. Know, just it'd be great. Unweighted. Yeah. No no recording. Just hang out. <laughs> okay. okay, man. Take care of yourself. You take care too. Yo Yo Ma, Beginner's Mind, available for free to all US listeners on Audible right now. Go listen. Great guy, interesting life. And uh, he's, he's got work for a living, man. Bow tie or no bow tie. Here's some music. I'm going to learn some new chords someday. I swear, I promise. I'm going to learn some new chords. But here are the three I always play. Everywhere.